0: 2 Samuel chapter 7. Alright, 2 Samuel 7. Um, just to remind you guys, this um, Sunday night gathering, including Monday night and Wednesday night, um, is called Tree of Life. And our purpose, our existence, is to gather so that we can cultivate an unshakable love for Jesus that's rooted in Scripture. And so we do so, obviously, with Scripture. This is root time. This is sinking your roots into the Scriptures, understanding some, um, don't be scared by the word, but some theology, some study of God, some technical things about your faith so that your minds and hearts are are all in agreement and rooted in Christ and in His Scriptures. And then... um, through the interaction of each other, we seek to cultivate a culture and each other's lives to look more like the tree of life, Jesus Christ, so that we can become a temple like Eden, where people find life. That's, in a nutshell, what we are about. We believe that God created man to rule creation It's his kingdom, and he gave it to us to rule over, to be lords of, to have absolute command over it. And I, I think that there are things in creation we have never tapped into that would blow our minds, but we can't right now because we have lost our rulership. But we were created for it, and that we are trying to get back to ruling this earth. And that answer comes in Jesus, who comes to restore, that's been our word, restoration, to bring us back to this rulership that we we're made to have and we await his return to bring his kingdom and to release the curse off creation and we will fulfill the rulership commission. And right now, he's commissioned us to do this spiritually, to set captives free from the kingdom of darkness so that they can be restored to the kingdom of Christ and that they can be cultivated and learn to control life through Christ right now, lest they be dominated by our culture and run over and blah, 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 blah. So. So. That's, in short, what we believe. And that's where we're going. Restoration in Jesus. Alright, 2 Samuel 7. We're going to read the first 17 verses tonight. And when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Remember the tabernacle and Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, the king, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? No. So now therefore, thus says the Lord to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I who took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you may be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them like a garden, like Eden, plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And the violent men afflicted them. Um, And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly for the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Perfect peace, in other words. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. You want to make me a house? I'm going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity or wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure for ever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Father, um, help us tonight. To understand your word. We want to grasp the magnitude. Of what this passage teaches us about Jesus. So help me to communicate father. In a way that makes this plain. So that we can see Jesus. As our eternal king. Leading an eternal kingdom. Who is inviting us to reign with him in that. Restore father those who are exiled and apart from you who are wandering around, suffering from chaos and being controlled by culture. Lord, restore them to your presence tonight. Be our king, be our God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. Mm. I bet you want some water. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Tonight we come to... What may possibly be considered, and I, I can't honestly think of another chapter that could rival it—maybe rival, but not overcome it. This, this is the most in chapter, <laughs> important chapter of the Old Testament. What? There's nothing exciting here. God just says, "Yeah, yeah, David, I'm, I'm going to build for you a house. Your throne's going to go forever. lali lolly, da." He wanted to build a temple for God, but God said no. What is all this talk about the the prophet being wrong and all this stuff? but what what is promised here to David? if you take this chapter out and you don't see it and you don't grasp it, then who Jesus is in the in the gospels will not mean as much to you as it should. Who Jesus is is absolutely resting upon this chapter. And if you strip all the elements out of this, Jesus will just become like, okay, yeah, so he claims to be a king and all, but I just don't see it. I I hope that tonight, this chapter, what it does is it, it bridges everything you know about Jesus to the Old Testament foundation, and you see what he came, not just as some king, but he came to fulfill and accomplish a lot of things that man couldn't. Not just so that you don't have to, but you couldn't. And he came to do it for you. So I hope that that's what we see here tonight. Is essentially this. That because Jesus is the son of David. My restoration. Your restoration. Being brought back with him. Is not just a temporary thing. It's an eternal thing. Because of his connection to David. It's eternal. And I will do my best to show that to you tonight. So we're going to look at. First, what led up to this chapter? Because we skipped a whole bunch, didn't we? We went from Joshua and went all the way up to 2 Samuel. If you're holding up a good chunk of pages in your Bible. Um, We started off really slow, you know, a couple chapters in Genesis. And now all of a sudden, BAM! We've we've jumped a whole gap. So I'm going to do my best to bridge this briefly. How in the world did Israel get a king? Why? So we'll talk about why David's on the throne in the first place. And then we will look at what it means that David's on the throne. This is very important that David is on the throne. It sets everything up. Everything up. And then, of course, why does this matter to me? When my parents are getting divorced or I'm struggling with drama. And if you're struggling with girl drama, guys, get it a life. It'll, it'll be better. I promise. But anyways, any other kind of drama. So... <laughs> I'm sorry if that's hurtful, but let's be real here. Okay, You've got you to get your head out of the sand. You can't live like an ostrich. <laughs> so let's, let's look at conquest, chaos, and king. That's the storyline from Joshua up to this point. When we looked last week at... Two weeks ago, right? Yeah, we were downstairs last week. Two weeks ago, when we looked at Joshua, what we saw was God picked the nation of Israel out of Egypt and said, I want to use you guys to be my priests. In other words, to be my representatives. You're going to go establish a culture in a land I'm giving to you and that culture is going to spread. You're going to expand it through military power and you're going to bring that culture to all the other nations and the nations are going to learn that I am the one they're separated from and I want to restore them and I want to return the Edenic state, the perfect garden to this globe and let man rule once again in harmony with God. That was Israel's mission. So God leads them to the promised land. They go in there. He says, wipe out everybody because everybody in this land is rebelling against me. And if you want to restore a culture of of, a culture of restoration, you must annihilate them. So they go in there and they do that. Mostly they they take control of it, but they allow a couple little pockets of, of the old culture there. Some of the old sinners are still there and. And what happens is because they did not completely annihilate them, those little cultures began to rub on Israel. And rather than them creating a culture under God's rule, they began to be affected by the Canaanite culture, the wicked culture, and they began to get sucked into it, just like Adam in the garden. Got sucked into the serpent's rebellion against God. And so they started to get corrupt. And this is where chaos began to happen. In fact, in... Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Actually, basically the last verse of the book of Judges. This is what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. (laughs) Now, can you imagine if it said in those days there was no government in America? (laughs) There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, so they're being cultivated by this bad culture, and there's no one ruling Israel, so everyone's just doing whatever seems right in their own eyes, and the culture is being corrupted. There is chaos. God sends the enemies into Israel, and they punish them, and some of them go into slavery, and they're always having to pay. Basically, like let's say you get in trouble, and your parents have to take your allowance from you. Most of you probably don't get allowance anymore. You're working, but some of you maybe do. I don't even know if allowance exists these days. Parents are all broke, it seems like. But... I got a quarter every week that I did my... And it was inflation, you know. I was like five or something. I got a quarter. That was a big deal. It means a gumball. Love quarters. So, but like you get in trouble and that gets revoked from you. In many ways, when Israel sinned, God would send an enemy in. And they would basically come in and say, we're stronger than you. So give us all your crops. And they'd have to give them all their crops, which means they couldn't eat. So they were oppressed. There's chaos. Because there's no one leading Israel to cultivate a culture of restoration under God's rulership. So that's why there is need for a king to rule Israel. Now, God's supposed to be their king. But the people were in need of a representative since you can't see God. A man who would stand between God and the people and rule on behalf of God. Which would mean he has to do what God wants, not what he wants. Well... This is where the people step up, and they come to a guy named Samuel, who's kind of loosely just, he's like a prophet, so he's kind of overseeing the nation, but he's, he, can't, he has no government, so all he can do is hope people listen to him. And the people come to him and say, Samuel, your sons are wicked. This isn't going to work. We need a real king, just like all the nations around us, so give us a king. And the people and Samuel argue about it like, God's your king. No, we need a real king like all the other people. You're supposed to create a different culture. We want to be just like their culture. And it went back and forth. And then God told Samuel, listen, listen. Let them have the king. It's not you they're rejecting Samuel. They're rejecting me. And so the king is put in place. And God picks a man named Saul. First king of Israel steps up. Now, Saul was not a good king at all. One of the first acts he does is he rebels against God, just like Adam. One of the first acts Adam did was rebel against God. And everything went downhill fast to the point where Saul, at the very end, refused to even look at the Lord. In fact, he couldn't hear from God anymore. So he went to a witch to have her consult a dead person to tell him what to do in battle. That he got into witchcraft. So Saul went downhill fast. And it was a disaster. He committed suicide on the battlefield. Then David came. And things got a lot better. But why did God yield into giving a king in the first place? I think it's because... God knew that the people needed that representative, that hands-on leader who would represent God. Just like Adam. Remember Adam in the garden was a representative of God. He, we called him an under-king. That's what it meant for him to be created in God's image. God's a ruler. Man's a ruler. That's the image of God. So he's the under-king. He can rule as long as he's under God's rule. And that's what the king was supposed to be. It's like a new Adam coming to lead Israel to cultivate the, quote, garden, the, king, the promised land, and to bring restoration to the nations... And so he's supposed to be God's under-king. So God wanted to glorify himself through this king as long as the king obeyed him. And the reason, of course, is so that the king would lead the nation to build a culture that saved people. But the very first king fails. And I think the reason why God chose a bad king on purpose... I do, I think he chose Saul to fail because he wanted to show the people of Israel... That even Israel's finest, best, most talented person cannot replace God as the ultimate king. Saul was the cream of the crop, if you will. He was, what would you say? He's as close as a celebrity that can be in Israel. He was good looking, so he's probably on the cover of GQ. He probably had a good voice so he's on American Idol winning and he probably record like platinum records like I mean just putting it in context today, this guy there's no flaw in him everybody respects him the Bible says that he was a whole head and shoulder taller than everybody else and that was symbolic to say that he stood out he was a man of, of everybody's yearning it says in um, 1 Samuel 9 2 that he was handsome and that there was nobody more handsome than Saul this was the best man of Israel you could possibly pick to be king. And God shows them that you can pick the best of humanity, the most talented, good-looking, smartest person on this planet, and they can never, ever, ever replace Yahweh God as the king of any people. So Saul's not replacing Yahweh. He's supposed to rule on behalf of Yahweh. And when he doesn't do so, God brings the axe down and Saul's head rolls. And he's done. So God moves on to king number two. And that's where we come. This is years after, but David is the king. And David is the complete opposite of Saul. Saul was, look at me, why wouldn't you pick me? And everybody knew it. David was, who is he? And why would God pick him as king? David was in a family of seven brothers, and he was the youngest. Culturally, that means he has no chance. You're supposed to pick the oldest, or at least the best. And, and while, there, while Samuel's there to pick the king, he saw one of the sons, and he was like, just like Saul. He was just beautiful. He was strong. He had this charisma and this leadership. And he's like, that must be the king. And then God said, that's not him. Don't judge on looks, Samuel. Because I don't judge on looks. I judge on the heart. There's another. Just Wait. And David wasn't even the house. Okay, this is how low of a chance David had of becoming king. The dad didn't even invite his son to be picked as king. That's how slim his chances were. And so Samuels are there going, there's no, sorry, none of your boys are going to be king. What, do you have another maybe by chance? Oh, yeah, there's David. Pfft. He's out, I don't know where, somewhere in the fields watching the sheep. He has the worst job in the family because he's the youngest. We just cast him out there. <laughs> if you're the youngest, I'm sorry. You probably know what that feels like. And so they call David in, and it says he's just this ruddy boy, not even like that good looking, just like messy hair, shaggy, he's about in the sun, he's all sweaty, he smells like sheep and manure and all that stuff. And he comes in, and that's the king. And everyone's astonished that this little boy is anointed the king. Nothing to show for. But what we learn in God's story is that God does not choose the grandest people who have something to offer him. In his story, God's story looks for the humble. It looks for the meek, the people that feel like they're nothing. And I don't mean you have to go, you have to start like beating yourself on the breast and I'm oh, nothing. I thought I was all this, and ripping your hair out, and just like making yourself ugly. I mean, God is there for the people who have these deep insecurities about who they are. People who recognize that they don't have anything to offer God, but they want a God to live through them and to give Him everything. God's looking for the broken people. The people who, knew, who know they need to be restored to him. The people not like Saul, but like David. 1 Corinthians one i I'm going to sum up what it says because it's a long passage. It essentially says that God chooses the stupid things of this world to put to shame the smart things. He takes the foolish things to put to shame the wise things. He takes the underdogs to upset the top seed. That's God's plan. It's the way he works. So if you consider yourself a Christian, understand that God didn't pick you because you were someone special. He picked you because you need him to be someone special. And if you're still feeling this this massive weakness, this massive insecurity, you hate yourself, you hate your identity, Jesus picked you because he wants you to adopt his identity. He wants to come and live through you. He wants to elevate you. He wants to elevate you from where you've been and make you something special. He wants to bring you to become an under king with him. Nothing that you had in and of yourself. And that's what David is. Nobody brought to somebody. How much? Do you guys remember, in Genesis 3.15, we, re- we reference this frequently, please learn this verse, that when, when man rebelled against God, God promised man, okay, I'm going to have to cast you out of my presence, you're going to be separated, but there's this promise. There is going to be a son, that we call him the seed of the woman, Who's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the descendants of the serpent, right? There was that promise that someone's going to come to crush the serpent's head. David is that person. Do you guys recall the story of David and Goliath? Classic. I mean, every kid hears that story, right? And we still. It's like the well, main plot of a lot of movies, even like Facing the Giants, that movie. Just classic, like, David and Goliath type of thing. Isn't it David who kicks a field goal anyways? I totally, like, rip off the story. Like, that's their, they're trying to, like, football version of David and Goliath. Um, David, when he, how did, how did he kill Goliath? Took a little rock, right? Swung it around and threw it. And where did it hit Goliath? Do you guys remember your Sunday school? Yeah, it hit Goliath in the head. David is the seed of the woman who came to crush the head of the serpent. Goliath was part of the serpent side? Yeah. Did you guys remember what Goliath was saying to David? You dog, I defy you and your God. He started saying all this, this crap about David and his God and said, I magnify the spear and my sword and my shield and my might and my strength and my tallness. <laughs> and he's just this massive guy and david just said i don't care you're defying my god you're you're part of the seed of the serpent you're rebelling against him i'm going to win this thing and his head is crushed he's the seed of the, he's the seed of the woman david is one of the deliverers that god sends and so that's david a nothing but god uses him as a something And that's how God's story works. So David steps in and does that. And then he begins, after he crushes the head of the serpent, he begins to fulfill what Adam was supposed to do. He begins to subdue the earth by conquering nation after nation after nation. Under David's reign, Israel experienced peace because he conquered every single enemy that he had. If you look at verse 1 of our text, it says, When the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, God gave him rest from the enemies. David was fulfilling everything man was made to be. So that's where David comes in. And now we come to the Davidic, this is what we call this chapter, it's called the Davidic Covenant. In fact, my title says God's Covenant with David. I don't know what yours says, but... Remember what a covenant is? Wow. <laughs> a covenant is God's initiating a relationship with man. He initiates it. He dictates it. And he seals the deal with his own blood. That's the covenant. And he makes this with David. So he enters into relationship with David and makes promises unto him that will be kept so what are these promises we read this passage and um, let, me, let me explain to you what David was doing you might, you might be like what the heck is this house thing about a house was a temple David wanted to upgrade the tabernacle that tent we've talked about in the past he wanted to upgrade that into a magnificent building with like gold and marble and wood just beautiful I want to make you a house God I live in a house you should too And and God says, look, you're not going to do it, David. Other passages say that he he can't do it because he's a man of blood. We don't know exactly what that means. It might mean that he killed Bathsheba's husband. It might mean that David is a man of war. Or it might mean that David still has people to kill because there's still a couple more enemies to annihilate. Whatever the reason is, David can't build the house for God. So this is what God promises him in verse 13. He promises him. He. You're going to have a son, David. Your son shall build a house for my name. So your son is going to build my temple. Not you, David. Your son. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's three components here. There's a house. There's a throne. And there's a kingdom. And these three are going to last forever. I'm going to use your son, David. He's going to do it. So David's like, oh, okay. Actually, David's stoked because God is like, look, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And your house, what he means by house, David, is it's like um, kind of like how you live in your father's house now. And you're, may, you're going to move out of his house because that's how America does it. But back then, you would just build on to the house. And the family would stay in the house. A house was considered the family lineage or the family tree. <laughs> tree, tree of life. <laughs> it's just like the connection. So by house, he means, David, I'm going to give you offspring and they're never going to cease. David's family is going to go on forever and ever and ever. He will always have a son to succeed him. And this is huge because in a, for a king... The person who reigned after him was his son. David was never going to lack a son. So his kingdom, his dynasty would go on forever. So David's stoked about this. And the temple will still be built, David. Your son's going to do it. So he promises him a kingdom. Promises him a house. And he promises him a throne. Now, don't think throne like a chair, okay? It's not a very big promise, like you could just go build one or make one or buy one. A throne is the seat of authority, so he's promising David authority forever. No one's going to come against your authority. You will always be in control. Now, verse 14, there's one condition. It says, in verse 14, I will be to your son a father, and he shall be to me a son. What's a father-son relationship like? It's explained in the next verse. When he commits iniquity, when he's bad, when he rebels, I will discipline him, like a father, with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. So, if the sons begin to disobey God, God's going to send men, the nations, his enemies, like other nations, to come and attack Israel. That's how he's going to punish him, as a father and son would do. But, verse 15, here's the promise, the other side of it. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. So I'll punish him, but I will always love him, and this covenant will never be broken. Just like our parents. I'm assuming you had a loving father. If you didn't, well, God can do that for you. And this is what he promised to David. Yeah, I'm going to punish when there's rebellion, but I will never forsake. I'm I'm using restoration here, and I'm going to make this covenant stand firm forever. So, in fact, Psalm 89 talks about this covenant, and this is what it says. Psalm 89 says, David's offspring will endure forever, his throne, as long as the sun. (laughs) Like the moon, his throne will be established forever, a faithfulness in the skies. So, basically, as long as the sun and moon exist... God will never break his covenant with David's family. So that's, that's a pretty solid covenant. In other words, it's not ending. We don't anticipate the moon to blow up tomorrow. So it's still going. There's still a moon and still a sun. So that's what the whole disciplinary thing is. Now, did David's children mess up? Yes. Because where is the kingdom of Israel today? Yeah, they messed up. They're not there. Does that mean God broke his covenant? No. I'll show you why in a second. But yeah, they messed up. So God sent the Babylonians, and they pretty much wiped Israel out of their kingdom, messed up the temple. They pretty much burnt the temple down, destroyed it. Jerusalem was destroyed. The throne was destroyed. Um, Yeah, God definitely had to discipline them because of their disobedience. So here's my question. Who is the son that God is talking to David about? Well, Solomon, right? Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Solomon built the temple. So God's clearly talking about Solomon. David, your son is going to build the temple, and his sons after him, the throne and the kingdom, will endure forever as, long, as well as the house. The temple, the throne, the kingdom, forever. And Solomon's the immediate son who's going to do this. So you're going to have a son, David, and he's going to come, and he's going to do this. Yes! But here's my other question. Is it really Solomon? or is it somebody else because Solomon didn't actually build a temple that lasted forever where is the temple today Solomon's temple was destroyed it was rebuilt in Jesus' time and that one was destroyed too there's no permanent temple where's the kingdom where's the throne It, it can't be in fact we'll see this next week Solomon actually destroyed the kingdom. Yeah, David, Solomon, kingdom splits. That suddenly. So, is it actually referring to Solomon? No. I think what is in mind here, yeah, Solomon is going to be the immediate fulfiller of this. He's going to start doing it. But David, there's an even greater son that you're going to have somewhere down the line who will Build an eternal temple, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. Forever means forever. It will happen. So, Solomon is not David's ultimate son. Jesus is. Jesus is the answer to everything in the Old Testament. Jesus built a temple that lasts forever. You're looking at it. I'm looking at it. It's us. Jesus established a kingdom that lasts forever. It started with David and it's still going to this day. If you're a Christian, you have been grafted into Israel and all these things. So, does Israel's kingdom exist anymore? No. Yes. <laughs> Through us. So, not a national Israel, not an ethnic Israel, but a spiritual Israel, us. We've been called into that kingdom. The throne, where's the throne? There's no king sitting on our kingdom, is there? But did not the book of Acts say that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God and took seat on the throne? Jesus is our king and he's ruling. The eternal temple, the eternal throne, the eternal kingdom is all thrusted through Jesus. Okay, great, but but we're talking about one of David's sons. Well, now do you get why the New Testament says over and over in the Gospels that Jesus is the son of David? How many people cry out to him, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus would respond. Matthew chapter 1, the very first verse, goes out of its way to make this clear. Jesus Christ is the son of David. And then it gives you the genealogy to prove that. It's one of those things you guys don't like to read because it's so boring. We skip over those. But it's the point. It's to show that Jesus is the son of David. That Mary and Joseph both descended from David. He is indeed the, the son that God's talking about here. To build all of this stuff for him. Um, and look at verse 14 again. It says, I will be to him a father. So this son isn't going to be to some ordinary son of David. It's also going to be the son of God. I'm going to be a father to him. Jesus is the son of God. That's, that's affirmed all through the gospels. So he's the son of David and the son of God. Literally. God is a father to him, and he is a son to him. Um, Think too, it talks about the chastisement here, where it says, you know, as a father will discipline his son, I will discipline the disobedient kings of David. Well, guess what happened to Jesus? He took our iniquities, our rebellions upon himself, and the father disciplined his son. With, no less, it says, the rod of men, Yeah, they scourged him with rods, with whips. Jesus took that. He is the ultimate Son of David. I want to read. In fact, if you're quick, this is such a great verse. Go to Luke one thirty-one. Hold your place here. Luke chapter one, because this is—you guys know this passage. We've we've heard it every stinking Christmas stinking i don't mean to make it negative every christmas i just mean like it's just so over like you just like, oh, i've heard this but listen to the significance now that you hear it this time luke 131 and behold the angels talking to mary behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high the son of god and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, that's Israel, forever. That's a key word, forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. So he is the son of David, Mary, and he's going to have David's throne, he's going to have David's kingdom, forever. Whew. What about the temple business? we saw that Jesus is going to sit on the throne forever he's going to have the kingdom forever we saw that in Luke but what about the temple business David here in 2 Samuel 7 this is key it says that he conquered the enemies and then wanted to build a temple for God remember you may not remember so let me remind you way back in Genesis 1 when we looked at creation we talked about how in these days, people built temples as a monument saying, I conquered this land. I did it. The enemies are gone. It's mine. And they built a temple. And that's what God did in the garden. He, he conquered the chaotic waters and darkness. That starts in the beginning of the Bible. And he brings creation there. And everything command is um, obeying his word. And then at the very end, in Genesis 2, it says that God rested. Gods were always considered to be resting in the temple. So what God did in making Eden was he made a temple and he to show he conquered the world. It's his. The chaos and darkness is gone. Creation's here. And David has the same thing in mind. I've conquered all my enemies. So I should build a temple, right? Yeah. So Solomon, of course, is going to be the one that does it. Now, Jesus did the same thing with his building of the eternal temple. He came to this earth to conquer God's enemies. The seed of the serpent, all the little descendants of the devil, those are his enemies, And Jesus came as the son of David, as the seed of the woman, the better David, the greater David, who's going to come and crush Goliath's skull, going to crush the serpent's skull. He came and he went to the cross to conquer Satan. In Hebrews it says he died to overcome the one who has the power of death, so that nobody dies anymore, at least those who believe in him. He came to smash the head of the serpent. And when Jesus did that on the cross, he completely defeated sin And death died through his death. And he rose from the grave victorious. That's what the Bible speaks of his resurrection. It was a victory moment. (laughs) He then built his temple. Because the enemies are subdued. And he called us to be that temple. John chapter 2 says this. Um, John 2 verse 19. You guys totally remember this story. Jesus goes in the temple... And he sees the money changers and he says, this is wickedness. And he whips them all out because they're, they're taking advantage of the people and extortioning all, you guys know the story, like charging them way too much and there's wickedness in there. And he, he drives it all out and then they come to Jesus and say, dude, who are you? Because nobody can do this to the temple. the a holy place. You don't do this here. And Jesus, I can just see what's going on in his head. He's like, who am I? The question is, who are you <laughs> to be doing this to my temple? But this is what he responds to them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it back up. What? It took us 46 years to build this temple, Jesus. You're crazy. You can't do it in three days. And then John makes this little comment and says, But Jesus was speaking about the temple of His body. We'll back up. The temple of His body, Jesus is a temple. No longer do the Jews, no longer does Israel go worship God in the little structure temple. He came to replace that. He is the temple. Because He's where we meet with God. God dwells in Him. He is God. Jesus is greater than any temple. That's why there is no temple today. Jesus replaced it. So He says, He was referring to His body. Therefore, when Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so the New Testament says that if you put your faith in Jesus, he becomes the head, we're the body. He be, he's the temple and we become stones in the temple. We join the temple of God. And this temple, you guys, me, him, we are going nowhere. We are eternal. We're forever. So I think you're seeing why, because Jesus is the Son of David, our restoration with God is eternal. It doesn't fade, it doesn't pass. If we're his temple, then we will be in Eden once again. Forever. It's going to come about because Jesus has won. The enemies are defeated. So, with all that said, God desires to restore the kingship of man over his creation. And he does so through Jesus. He rose up Abraham, he failed, and all his descendants failed. He rose up Saul, Saul failed. He even rose up David, and all his descendants, David failed. In a nutshell, you say Israel failed. And Jesus came to do what Israel couldn't do. And he's establishing that kingdom. And he's bringing our rulership back to creation. So we're called to make a culture today. To rule in what we can right now. Until he comes. And allows us to take the whole globe with him. That's what we're waiting for. That's what Jesus came to do. So. Guys. You can have eternal restoration with God. But be. On David's side and not on Saul's side. What I mean is trust God's story that he's in control of all this and he's working it together for good. And if you just trust and submit to story, you're going to end up at your eternal restoration. No matter what comes your way, whether it's divorce, whether it's breakups, seriously, it will, you'll, you'll live. Whether it's uh-huh. dental and health problems, seriously, that's horrible. Um... Whatever just comes in life, trust God's story that he has this mastered. Everything's going according to his plan because Jesus came and conquered. And, and the temple, the kingdom, the throne, it's, it's set up forever. Nothing's going to come and ruin that. So hold to that story and trust it rather than being like Saul who trusted in man's glory. Alright, I don't care what talents you have, or how smart you are, or how good life is going. Don't trust in those things, because they will fail you. Saul and your talents and all those things can never replace God as king. So submit to his story, and you will be the inheritor of eternal restoration and glory forever. So I encourage us, don't write your story don't keep pursuing and so worried about how many people like my Facebook status and just so consumed with your story going the way you want it. Or how many girls like you. Seriously, you can only marry one. Unless you want to damn your soul, become a Mormon, and go that way. It's up to you. No, guys, let him be the author. Just submit to his story. It works out in the end. and It works out forever. You know how the fairy tales end happily ever after? Well, you can just stamp at the end of the Bible. Happily ever after. Forever. Eternity. No period. Just kind of... You keep saying eternity. Forever. Forever. We've lived a million years. You just scratch the surface. What are we going to do? Don't worry. Garden of Eden status is going to be awesome. You're going to rule and reign and discover things forever. We're going to be discovering. It's going to be awesome. Creating culture forever. Anyways... Lord, Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust your story and not our own glory, not our strength. Let there be no Saul's here, not in your temple, just David to trust you. Um, so we ask that spirit of the living God that you would fall afresh on us tonight. You'd melt us. You'd mold us. You would use us and fill us to become a people who restore all peoples around us. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.